Welcome to Nothing Ventured, a podcast exploring some of the lesser heard stories in tech and venture. Join me, Arish Shah, as I speak to founders, investors, and ecosystem operators to bring you insights from the roads less traveled. Hey all, and welcome to this episode of Nothing Ventured. I am super excited to have our guest on today. Our guest is Mac Conwell, who's a managing partner at Rare Breed Ventures, Baltimore fund that invests in pre-seed startups, often the first check-in. Mac is a former engineer, a two-time founder, and was previously fund manager for the Maryland Tech Development Corp. He's very, very active on Twitter, as I'm sure many of you may know, and this year became a Kaufman Fellow. So I'm really excited to have Mac here with me today. Welcome, Mac. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Amazing. So, Mac, we had a chat kind of before this call, and I think it'd be really interesting for our listeners to understand a little bit about kind of your journey from the earlier days all the way through to launching your first two startups, going back into marketing, I think, and then into venture. It'd be great to understand kind of how you move through that journey just to set the scene a little bit. Yeah, happy to talk through that. And so, for those who don't know, I'm originally from Baltimore, so went to school here and uh, studied computer science, sophomore year of school, got an internship with the Department of Defense and got a top secret clearance. And so that gave me the ability to then leave school the next year and start working as a professional for Northrop Grumman. So I was a government contractor doing a lot of, you know, technical stuff, database administration, website development, app development, stuff like that. And then in 2010, started my first company, two of my best friends. Oddly enough, when we started that company, we didn't know what a startup was. We didn't know what a VC was. We didn't know what networking was. So we ran that for four and a half years to accelerators and eventually sold the IP to a division of a Fortune 100 company, which was really cool. And then right after that, I had the bug and I felt like I knew everything. I knew how this world was done. And so I started another company with a new team and that company didn't work out. Right. So, you know, I've had a win and a loss, ended up coming back to Baltimore and worked at a marketing firm for a year before getting a job working at the Maryland Technology Development Corporation, which happens to be the largest funder of early stage tech companies in the state of Maryland, also known as Tedco. And so there I started off on the seed investment team. And then I then led an initiative to create a pre-seed fund specifically for underrepresented founders. It is the first and only state-backed pre-seed fund for women and minorities in the country, something I'm really proud of. And last September, I left that job to start Rare Breed. So little long-winded, but that's my, a little bit about my background. That's not long-winded at all. And like, I think it's just incredible kind of the, the various steps along that journey, whether it's operating or into venture and back. I mean, when we talked previously, you mentioned like two inflection points in your life, 2016 and 2020. I'd love for you to kind of talk to our audience about that. I mean, one of the things that I think, you know, we're definitely going to explore as we chat here is... The difficulty being, you know, a black founder, a black VC, and how difficult it is in the ecosystem generally for those that marginalize or from diverse backgrounds. But those two inflection points for me were really, really critical to understanding how you kind of approach things. I'd, I'd love for you to kind of explore that and, with our listeners. Yeah. And so when you mentioned 2016, 2020, 2016 was the year I broke into venture and got my job and my first job as a VC. And then 2020 is when I left my job to start Rare Breed and start my own fund. The thing that's interesting about those two time periods and those two events, if both of those events were preceded by the killing of a black man by a police officer here in the United States, 
And so in 2016, I mentioned I was working at a marketing firm in July of 2016. I believe it was July 2016, the week Philando Castillo got shot and killed in his car by a police officer for legally having a firearm. It was the same week that the marketing firm I was working at started soliciting the National Rifle Association for a contract with me as the lead. And for anybody who knows a little bit about the history about the National Rifle Association, it's that they have a history of not supporting black gun owners and black gun rights. And so as a black man, I informed the marketing firm I was with that I could no longer work there once they won that contract. And I quit that job on a Friday. And the very next Monday is when I got the email saying that Tedco was hiring. And so that preceded me, you know, applying for a job as a VC, which again, had that not happened, I'm probably not here today, right? Like if my firm doesn't start, you know, soliciting National Rifle Association for a contract, I probably don't apply for that job. I probably don't even see that email. Right. Oddly enough, like it was a it was a personal email that one, I never checked my personal email at work. So that was unusual. And then two, I think it was like the first email I had ever seen from Tedco. Like I had known of them for years, but I never read one of their emails. I didn't even know they had my email address. Right. And then in 2020, in May of 2020, we all know about the killing of George Floyd and how much of a awakening that was. Well, it was during that time that I started tweeting more and getting more active on Twitter. And during that process, I met a founder of a company called RoboAmp based in Dallas, Texas. It's a Latin founder building something really cool. I wanted to support and didn't have any way to support him. And so as I started trying to find some individuals to put SPV together, a special purpose vehicle to make a one-off investment in this company, one of my advisors was like, yo, Mac, I don't want to invest in this company. I want to invest in every company that you find. So there's a moment in time right now, and I think you should go raise a fund. And if not for what happened to George Floyd, I don't start tweeting regularly. Like I started tweeting more consistently after that because I just had thoughts I had to get off my head. But that led to me then meeting this founder, which led me to then having a conversation with my mentor, which led me to start, go raise a fund. Right. And so while all of this is all very serendipitous in the process, it was both major events in my life were preceded by the killings of a black man by a police officer. So kind of interesting story arc. Yeah, I mean, I guess very, very hard for a lot of us to understand, I guess, especially those of us that don't live in the U.S., albeit that we've been, you know, we were watching events unfold out there throughout last year. Very hard to understand exactly how that might impact someone very directly in the way that it clearly impacted you, I guess. And I think it's incredible that it took something so awful for you to be able to then realize, I guess, the dreams that you're after, realize the kind of path that you wanted to go on. But I guess also we should ensure that we don't define ourselves by the worst of things, right? We've got to define ourselves by the best of things as well. How do you think, you know, in the aftermath of all of that, how has that made you or how do you think that's going to make you a better VC? How do you think that's going to make you a better investor? How is that going to help you help the founders that you work with? Because I can imagine there are so many things that, as you said, that you wanted to get off your mind and off your chest. And no doubt many founders had similar sort of issues. Like, So how is all of that kind of interplayed with how you now work with founders in, in the work that you do? I think more broadly, the way I think about it is, and you know, I talk about this when evaluating companies, is being able to evaluate both founders and industries with some cultural competency. 
right? And understanding like during that time period, if you found a founder who was lashing out very negatively on social media, right? Like that's a, a real easy moment to be like, no, 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 that's not what you do. You know, you're almost like a public figure. Your image represents the company. You can't do that. Or do you take the stance of, hey, I hear you. It's a really rough time. You know, do you need to say all that on social media the way you're saying it? No, but I respect the fact that you're feeling the way you are and that you are only just displaying raw emotions. And I can't penalize you for raw emotions that come from a very authentic place. Right. And that goes both ways. That goes for people who were on the side of what happened to George Floyd was deplorable. That also goes for people on the side of what happened to George Floyd was because a police officer was in the line of duty. Now, whether or not I agree with either of those statements doesn't matter. What matters is that we're all human and we're all a collection of the experiences we've had in life, right? I've met people who have never had a negative experience with police officers in their life and can't fathom a police officer ever wanting to cause harm to somebody. I have also, you know, have the live experience of having my jaw broken by a police officer, right? For doing nothing, honestly. And so I understand where founders are coming from when they make those statements. Either way, and I say all that to say is the cultural competency of being able to be understanding in those moments becomes important. The same way the cultural competency that allows you to understand a market of, hey, when somebody tells me they want to create a dryer to dry wigs, that's interesting to me because I know a lot of women in my life who wear wigs or wear hair pieces. If you don't, it's really easy to think that that's a small market, right? That's a cultural competency. You know, when we invested in a company called Monet Dating, it's a Gen Z dating app. One, I'm not Gen Z. And two, I haven't ever used a dating app because I was already off the market (laughs) before dating apps were a thing, right? But because I have Gen Zers who are fellows or interns of our fund who were telling me about how amazing this was, I empowered them to run that deal and to share their experiences and to share what their friends are saying and share what their community was saying, because there was no way I was going to be able to tap into that. I'm a 35-year-old black man, like I'm a Gen Z dating app. I'm like, no. But being able to have that cultural competency on my team mattered. And so when I think about the events and how that affects what we do as a firm, it's more so just a reminder of this is why diversity of of all things, people, genders, races, whatever, make matter so much in the context of what we do in venture. Right? The more diverse the team you have the more cultural competencies you'll have to better evaluate not just the objective, but some of the subjective stuff that comes with, you know, making an investment, right? It's not always all about pure numbers, right? I mean, Ben Horowitz likes to tell the story of when they made the investment in Pinterest. And when Pinterest pissed them, he didn't get it. But one of the key metrics was young women loved it. And so he went home and told his daughter about it. And his daughter said she had never heard of it. He told her, go try it out, check it out. And hours later, she comes back downstairs and says, dad, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And so he makes the investment. Was that about the numbers? Did he get it? 
No, there was somebody in his life who had the cultural competency to understand the value of that product. That's one of the most successful, successful investments they've ever made, right? Like those things matter. So then that also makes you realize like had Ben Horowitz not had a daughter, does he pass on Pinterest? And if he passes on Pinterest, does Pinterest become what it is today? I don't know the answer to any of those. All I know is I better have a daughter one day. So if I meet the next Pinterest, I'm going to know to make that investment. I can definitely tell you having daughters is a wonderful thing. I have two of my own. And interestingly, both of them are looking at this fashion this fashion tech venture that, that I'm looking at at the moment. They, they love it. So I know I'm onto a good thing. So that's actually a really interesting way to kind of feed into what I wanted to ask you next, which is like, so overall, when you're evaluating a venture, what is it that you're looking for? So you obviously mentioned cultural competency as being, I guess the way I'd frame that is, is there a market here the individual or there is a, or is there a niche of people that will understand this product, especially if it isn't a mainstream product and that therefore there is a market for that. But what are the other things that you look for? Like, so what are the broader kind of things you're looking for, especially at Precede where there are fewer numbers, right? Oh, that's a good question. I'll answer this by saying one, every deal is its own individual beast, its own individual thing, right? So every deal is different. But what I'm looking for is really a unique perspective on the world, on customer acquisition, on a specific industry, right? When we take the wig dryer, like the way that founder came up with the idea was she had set up an appointment to get a weave or a hair extension put in and she had to drop her hair off the day before. So she had to drive an hour away to her stylist, drop her hair off the day before so her stylist could wash it and color it so that she could go and get it put in the next day. She was like, why am I making two trips? This doesn't make sense. <laughs> right? And so that's where the idea comes from. That's just, that's such a, you know, entrepreneur, see problem, make solution, right? Like that's, that's what entrepreneurship is. See problem, make solution. But what was clear was that was a solution that most of the people we think, when we think of people who are entrepreneurs and the kind of problems they're solving, we don't think of somebody who looks like her. And we don't empower people who look like her to become those type of entrepreneurs and make those solutions. Well, she already had it, right? Like that's, that's what an engineer does. They see problem, think and create solution, right? And so that was a very unique individual taking a very straightforward approach to something that was just, it made sense, right? Like, why don't we have this already? On the flip side, you see something like, it's a company called Scholar Me. The founder was a 16-year-old kid when I met him. He was 17 when he finally launched the product. And it was originally a common application for scholarships, which is not a great idea. It's a really hard market. It's really hard to make a lot of money. But you still, you hear the founders out. You let them talk to you. And that founder then explained to me how he used a hack on Venmo to get his first 25,000 users. I've never heard of somebody creating a growth hack using Venmo. I've, I've never seen it before. It's one of the smartest things I'd ever heard. And because of that, I knew that that founder was going to be one of the smartest people in any room he ever walked into. And here we are a few years later. And, you know, now he's raised money from folks at Goldman Sachs. He's now gone through Y Combinator, you know, like he is a venture backed founder with a really cool fintech product, right? And so in that instance, it was just 
the way he thought about customer acquisition and the way he thought about growth hacking was I knew he would always be able to figure out how to get customers. And it gave him a runway to create the right product for that customer base. And he's gotten better and better and better by that, you know, every quarter he's always getting better. And so in that case, that's what's fun. And then sometimes it's just founder market fit. So, you know, we're, Another company we invest in, Juno Medical, they're creating the next generation medical center, right? With a very unique way of doing scheduling and payments, right? So then you're like, who is the right person to create another, a next generation medical center that has this cool technology component? Well, it happened to be a gentleman by the name of Akili, who is a black physician turned McKinsey consultant who specialized in medical payments. Like, I mean, it was like, like we talk about unicorns, finding a unicorn, like, oh my God, <laughs> right? Like, like who's the right person to back? And you know what? He is one of the most professional early stage invest, I mean, entrepreneurs I've ever met. Like he runs his company like a Fortune 500 company, which, you know, speaks to his McKinsey consulting background, but his thought process is very scrappy and unique. Like I see with every other early stage company, like it's very rare you find the founder who is perfect for both starting a company and, and, and growing a company. Those are usually two very different skill sets. And Kelly is definitely a founder who has both. And so again, every deal is unique. Every, every company, every entrepreneur is unique, but it's understanding what makes them unique and really grabbing hold of is that is what makes them unique and what makes what they're building interesting and the way they're approaching it. Is that enough to want to back them? Is that enough for me to say, Hey, I'm willing to lose sleep over this individual in this company. Cause every time I make an investment at some point in the life of that company, I'm going to lose some sleep over it. I'm going to lose some sleep over this person. Like, is this worth it? And if it is, you, you, you make it happen. That's incredible because you hear a lot of investors who talk about kind of having a thesis and they're, they're quite almost dogmatic about following that thesis, whether it's about a certain vertical or whether it's about a certain market or whether it's a certain type of technology. I mean, to me, it sounds like you kind of take every deal as it comes and look at it in its in isolation in and of itself. I mean, I think we had a conversation around like I was a bit <laughs> I was a bit flippant around grocery delivery startups. But, you know, you said to me the huge market in California, it's worth being that even if you get a tiny percentage of that. And, you, and I think you have an investment in a grocery startup, a delivery startup. One of the questions I had, and that kind of, again, flows on from just the, you know, the thoughts that you had on those various founders, you know, your website kind of proclaims we invest in exceptional founders. What is exceptional? Because in today's kind of atmosphere where everyone's an entrepreneur, what is exceptional? I mean, you described a few things there, but I mean, how do you really, really kind of zone in or hone in on, on what incredible looks like? Again, it's different for every founder. I mean, you got, you know, Achille from Juno, you know, a physician turned McKinsey consultant specialized in medical payments. Like, that's amazing. The woman building the wig dryer, you know, she became a surrogate mother to raise the capital to start building her prototype. Like, oh my God, like if you're talking about commitment, you know, investors always ask, well, how much skin, like how much did you invest in this? I want to know you have skin in the game. Well, she didn't have anything to invest in. So she literally gave birth to twins to, to prove her commitment, right? You know, Femi from Scholar Me is a 17-year-old kid creating a hack on Venmo that I'm pretty sure Venmo would be really upset about if they knew he could do back then 
you know, all these individuals are exceptional. And then, you know, that, that grocery delivery startup in California, Buffalo Market, the founder there, Adam, he's a Polish immigrant, right? <laughs> like, you know, his whole life has been tough, right? Like, and he has the most positive disposition you'll ever see. And the moment I knew I was going to invest in that company was the day I, we had a meeting to catch up. And, you know, he's sweating because he's living out of his warehouse where all the groceries are. And he's telling me how he just rearranged the warehouse and how, you know, he did it with his co-founder. His co-founder is an individual who I wouldn't classify as somebody who does a lot of physical labor. But yet he was able to get this gentleman over the course of a weekend to rearrange an entire warehouse. Like, that's really hard work. That's not fun work. You couldn't pay me to do that kind of work. Well, maybe you could if I if I needed the money bad enough. But then we're talking about people who don't need the money. Like his co-founder is an independently wealthy individual. He don't need this. But this founder was able to convince him and the rest of his team to spend their weekend rearranging a warehouse. Like that's the type of stuff you don't see every day, right? Like, like you know, these founders who are forces of nature where like, it's like every time you look up, somebody's giving them something or somebody's doing them a favor or, you know, they somehow got a partnership with Wikipedia. We invested, when I worked for the state of Maryland, we invested in a company called Osmosis, which helps with uh, medical students better train. And now they also help with nursing and other things. But back then, they had a partnership with Wikipedia where when you looked up certain medical terms, their videos would pop up. What? <laughs> You're an early stage company. Like, you know, we're talking about they hadn't even reached a million in revenue yet. And yet you have a deal with Wikipedia. Like, it's, that's bonkers, right? But it's because of how amazing the founder was at creating partnerships and doing deals. And so, like, for me, I was like, yeah, you bet on those. You bet on companies like that. You bet on founders like that. But every single one of these founders is is incredible or extraordinary for very different things, right? And But it all goes back to, like, a unique perspective around customer acquisition or industry, right? So like really finding people who are going about things very differently, who who just, who clearly see a lane that, you know, others aren't seeing. And so, yeah, that's the way I look at it. Man, that, that's amazing. I, I think someone else we've had on described it as they don't look at the founder, they look at the team they're able to build around them. So it's like, again, as you said, having that ability, that force of nature, if you like, to attract other people and to bring them along for the journey. I think, yeah, 100% can see why that's really important. I wanted to flip on to kind of some thoughts on venture in general. So, you know, we're seeing this proliferation at the moment of what are called micro funds and Revreed, I guess, would kind of classify as a micro fund, albeit, you know, 10 million bucks is not micro for, for a lot of people. What are your thoughts around just the ubiquitous nature of capital out there in the market at the moment? Do you think that's a great thing, a good thing, a bad thing? I mean, clearly you don't think it's an awful thing because you're raising a fund, but what do you think the impact of all of these sort of smaller, very, very kind of agile funds cropping up now, what impact do you think that's going to have on the market overall? I think the impact we're going to see in the market is, well, just one, is just more capital, right? So more capital, so more individuals getting opportunities to build, you know, these amazing companies. The other thing we're seeing with a lot of these smaller, more nimble funds is a lot more diversity, right? And so my hope is with a broader range of individuals participating at the early stages and creating all these, these smaller funds, 
we're going to see a wider profile of entrepreneurs getting funded. I don't know what it means long term, though, because not all these funds are going to last. The ones that do well are going to do what the playbook of the Andreessen's, right? You start off with your smaller, small-ish fund. You do really well. You grow to get, you grow bigger. And the next thing you know, you're doing like, you're raising four billion every year, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> no. And at that point, the profile of the companies you invest in changes over time. Like your strategy changes. And so I think the way the venture, the way the venture business model works is that it creates this natural flow of, Every generation, you start off with these smaller funds and they're going to progress to get larger. What's going to be interesting, and as they progress to be larger, it becomes a new gap for the next wave of funds to come in, right? So I, I think you create this natural flow. What's going to be interesting, though, is to see how many funds don't follow that trajectory, right? So you look at a fund like Precursor with Charles Hudson. Charles is like, yeah, I'm going to just raise a $40 million fund every two years. And I never went getting bigger. I don't want to do any more than that. Like, just keep raising funds at this size. This fits my strategy. This is what I want to do, right? Now, does that mean he doesn't get the chance to have the amazing management fees or even carry from having a bigger fund and writing bigger checks? Sure. But this is his sweet spot, and this is what he specializes in. And it's going to be interesting to see how many of the new funds today are going to take a similar approach and how that actually evens out the the ecosystem or... What's probably more likely to happen is we're going to see consolidation. We're going to see a bunch of these smaller funds coming together to make bigger funds, or we're going to see the bigger funds start acquiring the smaller funds. Because what we've also seen in the industry is like the larger funds are now investing earlier and earlier because all the smaller funds are coming in, making these investments, doing well, and then like growing along with their founders. And so, you know, Sequoia used to be able to come and be like, hey, I got this big check. I'm Sequoia. Take my money. And the founder might say, yeah. So the founder might be like, oh, you know, I really like Mac and the folks at Rare Breed. They just raised, you know, an opportunity fund. We're going to let them lead this round. And Sequoia's like, but we're Sequoia. You know, come, come take our money. And more and more founders are foregoing those opportunities until later. So that means the upside for the bigger funds is less. So that means the bigger funds have to come earlier. But then when you come earlier, that means you got to compete with me. And... You can't hunt the way I do. It's not your skill set. You know, you can hire all the junior analysts and people you want, but I don't know if they can hang with me, right? And so then at that point, then what do you do? Now that's what people probably be more interested in, like acquiring us, right? I mean, we just saw a few weeks ago, Greenspring Associates, which is not a small fund at all. You know, they have like 10 billion under management, maybe more, got acquired by a large public PE firm. Right. To build out their venture investing. Right. Like if a PE firm come, comes around to me, it's like, hey, Mac, we'll give you one hundred and fifty million in cash. We'll give you another five hundred plus million in stock. And we're going to let you keep all your carry and all this other stuff. Like, yeah, it's a nice little paycheck. <laughs> like any founder, like, ah, you know, what's that? Num- what's my number to walk away? What's my number to take a boss again? So I do think that there's consolidation coming in the industry more likely, but you know, the, the micro funds are instructive because this is how you get in. This is like, if you can get a job at a fund, go start one. You know, if you're at a fund and you don't like the way they're doing it, go do your own and do it better. 
give you know it's also going to create a lot more innovation in the community the more people we have going at this the more creative we think about it the more different models and and ways we can go about venturing all that's good for me anyway i think it's good yeah I i think that's an incredible perspective i mean here in the uk we've seen couple of funds listing actually recently as well, like so smaller funds and going onto the public market. We've also seen some funds raising through the crowd, right? So that's a complete change to where their LP base is coming from as well. I mean, actually, let set aside the acquisition by a PE fund, although I do wish <laughs> I do wish that on you at some stage. Like, what is your ambition for Rare Breed? Where do you see Rare Breed in the next three, five, 10 years? What do you want it to grow into? Like, what would be your kind of North Star for yourself? The goal is to be the next NEA or the next Greenspring Associates, right? The next New Enterprise Associates or Greenspring. And I use those two funds very specifically. One is because, I mean, NEA is one of the top venture funds on the planet. And Greenspring Associates was a venture fund that helped not pioneer, but I guess popularize the idea of doing both direct investments and LP investments and making that quarter your strategy. I also use both of those examples because they're both Maryland-based firms. So as somebody building a firm in Baltimore, Maryland, those are, you know, I am created and built out of their cloth, right? I am lucky enough to have one of the family office to one of the founders of NEA as an LP in my fund, right? Which matters. That means something to me. I'm going to get somebody from Greenspring before I close the fund. I need to get somebody from Greenspring. But I'm going to build a large multi-stage firm based here in Baltimore. That's what I'm going to do. That's that's what it's going to be. That's what's happening. I say based here in Baltimore because Baltimore will be our headquarters just because like that's what I'm going to say. But like my team is completely distributed and remote and probably always be that way. (laughs) Um, We'll probably always have a remote firm. But that's the goal to be the next big name, you know, big fund. Like, you know, I'm I'm competing with the Andreessen Horowitz, the NEAs, the the initialize, the lowercase like lowercase fund one, six million turned into three hundred plus. Like, good God, that, that's the cover <laughs> numbers I'm going for. That's what I want. That's the goal. Because I'm in this to win. It's like I'm going. I'm going to do well while doing good. Right. That's that's the goal. Amazing. Go big or go home, without a shadow of a doubt. So just before we kind of close up things, like I had a couple of questions that that I'm really intrigued about as someone that has sat. Certainly on one side of the table, kind of dip my toes on the other side of the table here and there and, and looking at some opportunities as well, I guess. What do you prefer, operator or investor? Investor. I mean, operators being fun is really fun, but as an investor, my paychecks are a lot more stable. Amazing. And if you had one piece of advice for a founder, you know, who's either looking to get going or is trying to raise their pre-seed, what is the one thing that you want to see? you know, in their deck, like you mentioned, obviously it could be anything. It depends on the circumstance, but if there's something, or let's put it another way. If there's something that is missing, what is that one thing that needs to be in there? If nothing else? I mean, if you don't tell me about your traction or your numbers, that's going to always give me pause and be like, Hey, <laughs> what are we really talking about here? Like, you're always going to get me to pause every time you making a lot of money or having a bunch of customers. Like if you told me, hey, we went from zero to 200,000 ARR in eight weeks, you're going to get my attention. Like the great equalizer for all of this stuff is making money or getting customers. Like traction is a great equalizer for everybody. Like, trust me, all the like, I was debating on whether, I'll tell a story, right? So 
I went through a program called um, VC Unlocked. It's 500 Startups VC Training Program. And when I went through it, we got to see the Series E pitch for a really big, well-known company. And it was really cool. It was the first time I'd ever seen one. It's, it's a very much similar to any other seed deck, but a bigger emphasis on the larger, the bigger plan or like what's the bigger goal, the bigger emphasis, right? What's the long-term plan? Because at that stage, it's far more viable. You can see the pathway to it. And then right after that, we got to hear from the VC who led that round, which was, it was a $450 million round. I think that VC put in $150 million into that round. And he goes through all the numbers. He shows us all the spreadsheet. He talks about all the, all this stuff, right? And then he tells us that it took, he did that deal. I think it was like in a week and a half, which let me know that all the documents and all the spreadsheets and everything he showed me was nothing but BS. They knew the moment that founder said that they were raising money, that they wanted to invest in them because of just how fast they had been growing and just how strong of a business it was. And so the week and a half of due diligence with the spreadsheets and everything was nothing but a bunch of BS to cover their butt in case the, in case that investment didn't go well. That was it. It was like, just in case this investment doesn't go well, we need to say we did this part. But we knew we were going to invest because those numbers were so big, we'd be fools not to, right? Great tractions, equalizer for everything. You got good traction, the world is your oyster. Now, growing a good business that actually leads to an exit, that's a different thing. But good traction, especially at any stage, that'll get you funded. Amazing. So just to wrap up, if you had like one final thought on the state of tech invention and the ecosystem in general coming out of COVID into 2021, you know, what's your reflection on where we're at right now and where we're going? My venture is more inclusive and diverse than it's ever been. And that is a really low bar to, to get across. And we are in the moment in time where that is being celebrated, I don't know how long that celebration lasts. And so what matters is while we're in a moment of time where there are founders and fund managers raising capital that normally wouldn't, we need to make sure we support those fund managers and those entrepreneurs to make sure that they're successful. Because if not, people are going to use the 2020, 2021, and probably 2022 vintage to say, hey, all that diversity stuff, did it work in terms of returns? And so that is not lost on me and that should not be lost on anybody else who cares about this work. Yeah, I think that's an incredibly important point. And Ed, it was interesting earlier on Twitter or on LinkedIn, I can't remember. I asked the question, with all this additional capital, what's the excuse now to not invest in diverse founders? And someone replied back very tongue in cheek, returns. And I think that's exactly the point, right? Like, I mean, if we judge everything on that and that alone, and we don't ensure that everyone is kind of lifted up and, you know, rising tide kind of thing lifts all ships, you know, then as you say, it's it's problematic to say the least. But listen, Mac, it's been incredible speaking to you. I'm so thankful for you having taken time out of your busy schedule and your day to come talk to me. Where can people find you? Where can our listeners find you if they want to follow you? Is that is the best place? Twitter? Yeah, follow me on Twitter at Matt Conwell, M-A-C-C-O-N-W-E-L-L. Follow me there. Shoot me a DM. Let us know how, how much you appreciated this podcast. For sure. 
So without further ado, again, thank you, Mac. I really appreciate your time. We're going to wrap it there and look forward to seeing all the amazing comments on the back of this podcast. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Nothing Ventured, an Emerge One production. As always, we'd love to get your feedback on our conversations, your thoughts, as well as topics or guests you'd love to hear from. Drop us a line on social media or via one of the links in the show notes. But for now, be well, and I hope to catch you on the next episode of Nothing Ventured. I mean, what have you got to lose, right?